1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now, typically on this show, we talk about leadership, about relationships, and about conversations, all of which I think are really good topics, and I'm trusting you agree with me. However, if you're leading a business, you also have to have good results, or you're not going to have any followers. You're also not going to be in business for very long. So today, I want to talk about results, particularly around driving growth in your revenues, organic growth, if you will. And as it turns out, what you thought you knew about how to do that might be missing a key element or two, and that's what we're going to focus on today. My guest is Bernie Jaworski. Bernie is the Peter F. Drucker Chair of Management and Liberal Arts at the Drucker School. He's the recipient of three major Journal of Marketing Awards, the Alpha Kappa Psi Award, which he's received twice, the Maynard Award, the Sheth Award. Needless to say, a lot of good work. And for 10 years, Bernie was senior partner at Monitor Group, advising clients on their human resource development, their leadership approaches, and their go-to-market strategies. So, Bernie, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Wanda, for the opportunity. It's great to be on the program.
1: I'm great to have you, and I'm actually really excited to talk about this one, because I think it's an interesting idea, this notion that how you drive organic growth may not be as straightforward as we all thought. So you've written a book about this, but before we get started on that one, how did you get started in this book, and why is this topic important to you?
2: Yeah, the ideas got started about 20 years ago. Bob Lurie, my co-author, was launching the marketing strategy practice at Monitor Group, is confronted with a problem, and the problem was he was applying the conventional wisdom that we all learned in business school. Segment the market, select a target segment, position the offering well in that particular target segment, and then activate with some form of marketing mix. He did this countless times over several years with good or great products and found that sales increased some of the time, sales decreased some of the time, and sales were flat some of the time. And now, importantly, uh, the question really was here was, He could continue to apply that conventional playbook, that conventional wisdom, um, or he could try something different. Now, the important thing I want to stress here is these are good teams, smart folks, good teams, well-trained, these are good products, and the programs are well-executed. They simply didn't work reliably. So Bob had to sit back and say, do I continue to sell services (laughs) where people will buy them because they believe the conventional wisdom, or do I actually try something different? That was Mm -hmm. the genesis of
1: Okay. All right. So what was it that was the problem? And what did you guys discover yeah. as you yeah. started this work? Yeah,
2: so, exactly. So, so, so what did he do? Um, so in a nutshell, what we learned is that positioning, the idea of differentiation in the minds of the target customer, um, uh, is necessary but not sufficient for growth. What we learned is that notion of changing the minds of target customers and finding a unique location in their mind about your offering is important. But that's just in your mind. There's no actual behavior change that happens like brand switching behavior or buying more from the category or new users coming into the category. That behavior is not happening when you're differentiating. You also have to think about behavior change. And so, importantly, what we learned was that most of conventional wisdom is to focus on behavior change at the brand choice level. So switch behavior, give people a more buy of your, more of your particular brand. But what we learned is that In our process of deeply understanding what's happening in a particular buying process is that the behavior that's far upstream in the buying process, think of things at the origination stage of buying. Think of things during formal search. Even while you're walking through airports and doing very, very different things, you are bumping into things along the way. And in my case, yesterday, actually, I ended up buying a book called Sapiens. I had no plan to buy that book. But when I was visiting a client in New York, the client mentioned the book. I was walking through the airport. I had an hour and a half, I walked into the bookstore, I bought the book. I had no plans to buy that book. So things happen along the way in the buying process that influence this downstream brand choice behavior. So let me give you two examples. Amazon knows that Prime users buy seven times the amount of goods on average as compared to a regular Amazon user. So if you're advising Amazon, should Amazon focus its marketing campaign on differentiation or should it focus on switching users from regular users to sign up for Prime? And similarly, Uber, you know, that you know, Uber knows that if you're in a friendship network that heavily uses Uber, you're more likely to download the app and then use it. That's exceptionally useful information. And once again, it's not about the differentiation of Uber versus taxis. It's about upstream buying behavior and things that are happening in search or origination or, or things that are just happening when you're not even thinking about buying goods that disproportionately influence, have a sort of path dependency downstream that influences buyer behavior. And that's the, the basis, that's the core idea that drives uh, organic growth. And I can give you more details around that, but that's, that's the, the, uh, the essential nugget or kernel of wisdom is you've got to look far upstream in the buyer behavior and look for things that you don't expect to happen uh, and try and understand where that looks. Now, the other point is that the only way this can work is that you have to quantitatively map and in excruciating detail where customers fall out of the process, because that allows you to see which particular behavior is the one that creates more leverage for the company. Which one can you change that actually advantages you, not just the overall competition in the marketplace?
1: So the notion is that positioning is important, useful, helpful, and differentiating my product is useful and helpful. That's important. We have to have a distinctive, but it isn't adequate. And it is inadequate because so much happens in the process uh, of for a consumer of buying your product. Loads of influences, some of which you may not have thought about it, like friends, your circle of friends, as an example you used right. in Uber. And then I have to map out that process and then look for where's my biggest point of leverage for changing behavior or where do I lose people in that whole stream? Did I get it correct?
2: You got it correct. And then... So in a sense, that's the first principle, and the book has five principles. So the first principle is map the buying process in excruciating detail. Look for these high-yield behaviors, like visiting your store, getting folks to try your product once, getting non-clients in a B2B setting to take your meeting early in the buying process. So map the buying process, principle one. Principle two is segment based upon their propensity or likelihood of engaging in that behavior. So for Amazon, if you're focused on signing people up for Prime, who's likely to be a Prime user? Are those folks that have very busy lifestyles? Are those folks with children at home? Are those folks that are highly mobile and need to have a, a not, and are typically not visiting retail stores? Who are they? The third thing you need to do is you need to profile your customers based on this behavior. What gets in the way of them engaging that behavior? And what actually is something that facilitates that likelihood of signing up uh, for Prime? The fourth thing you need to do is develop a, a behavior change value proposition. So normally in marketing, we develop product value propositions. Here we're focused on behavior change value propositions. What's going to get somebody to actually sign up for Amazon Prime? And then the and last principle is you need to disproportionately invest. You can't just spread your money across all marketing tactics. You've got to isolate the tactic that matters the most, and then you've got to spend aggressively against that particular tactic. Those are the five principles, uh, and they play out in many different situations. And I'm happy to share a few stories along the way. But that, those are the, the essence of, of the of the, of the thinking behind behind the book.
1: Okay. I'm very tempted, Bernie, and I may yet do it, to say, okay, let's look at my business. Let me talk about how how I get the buying process and so on. But I would love to hear an example from you. Just walk this through with all five principles. I'm going to repeat for them. It's map the buying process. Really understand what's driving the high-yield behavior. Two is segment based on people's willingness to engage in that particular behavior. Three is profile um, based on that behavior, what facilitates, what gets in the way. And then, fourth is what's the behavior change value proposition that gets those people to change at that point and then spend, promote, disproportionately aggressive against that particular behavior. So, give me a concrete example all the way through from front end to back end.
2: So, we had a heating and air conditioning client, energy services client. They had a the deep belief that um, the issue for them was around brand choice. For their air conditioners or heavy equipment versus other vendors. So we mapped the buying process for 500 different buying occasions in excruciating detail. What we found was, much to the client's surprise, it was not a six step process, it was a 14 step process. So the first observation is much more complicated than what the client thought. Second thing is we discovered early in the buying process that if the client took the meeting in the off season when they were not planning to buy, so during the off season, they had a three times probability, three X probability of buying from that client at the, when there was finally an RFP and when there was finally an actual buying process in place. So the key behavior to change was to take the meeting in the off season. <clears throat> so that's our behavior. Okay. Second thing is you can't focus on every single customer. You have to focus on propensity segments. Who's likely to take a meeting with our large HVAC systems? Well, these were people that were building managers that were running very large properties and multiple buildings and had severe energy restrictions in their area and had very high energy costs. So those are the variables that predicted whether someone was going to take the meeting in the off season. By the way, it turned out to be correlated with the size of purchase they were ultimately making in terms of HVAC systems. So then we had the profile of these people. Who are these building managers? What are they looking for? What do they care about? What are their attitudes? Uh, and then most importantly, not in general, but around the behavior. What's going to predict whether this particular individual, this building manager, actually takes my meeting? What are the two to three factors that drive it? What are the three or three factors that kind of get in the way? Then we develop the behavior change value proposition. I want this person to take a meeting. Now I have to make it easy for them to take the meeting. I have to meet with them at a time that fits their schedule. Uh, I have to have something to offer from a thought leadership perspective so they know my firm represents cutting-edge developments in energy services, so they've got to believe that we are the people that actually have a point of view around energy services and evolution. So there's a lot of factors that related to drivers and barriers around this, and the behavior change value proposition was built around that issue. So it was for that set of building managers that are managing large buildings where they had specific issues that were there, whether they were going to take the meeting or not. We developed a value proposition around that. And then finally... We took a lot of the money that we were spending on differentiating our HVAC systems versus our competitors. We took a lot of that money, and we reallocated it to getting the first meeting. So the people in charge had enough courage to say, I'm perfectly fine moving the traditional funds that I allocate to differentiation, market communication to to support the field sales reps, and actually allocate that set of funds to getting these early-stage meetings. So there was a number of things that we did in terms of conference attendance, in terms of thought leadership, in terms of webinars that showed that we were thought leaders in the space, and so therefore the building managers knew of us and they were more likely to take the meeting. So that's a simple example in a B2B context, and obviously I could provide some other B2C context, but that gives you a, a feel at a very high level as to what the process might look like.
1: That, I mean, it, it, geez, it makes so much sense once you say it, Bernie. I guess you get that a lot, too, on this one. This notion that I actually fundamentally understand what's driving the business, the buying behavior in the first place. And it's way more complicated than our marketing 101 would have taught us or than many of us do when we're just doing basic target segmentation. And I think that's the core idea here. And then once I understand that buying process, I start to understand what's really differentiating the buying choice and where I have my leverage and how I do that. And then I invest in making sure I'm at that position. I, I think that makes a ton of sense. And as you said, and with Amazon, just to put it back in the consumer context, if you know that Amazon Prime members are seven times more likely to buy from you, then you invest in what distinguishes somebody from becoming an Amazon Prime and how you drive in that equation versus worrying about just the end sales at the end of the day.
2: And, and you know what what's what's so interesting also about this, and it you know, it's funny. Once I do get in front of clients and I explain what's going on, it, the, the reaction is normally yours, which is, well, to you is, how do I, how do I actually deploy it? And, and what we try to do in the book was to actually say, this book is, is, a, is a pretty serious book in the sense that, unfortunately, it's not a quick read. We actually give away all of our intellectual property. So if you read a chapter on how to map the buying process, we tell you how to do it in a lot of detail. So we're sharing our perspective on not just the idea but we concretely give people the you know, the multi-step process on how to map the buying process. And it's fairly complicated because you're you're trying to map the end-to-end process. You're trying to do it quantitatively. You're trying to look for all the behaviors that are there. So we have actually four end-to-end client stories from cosmetics to wealth management to energy services to pharmaceuticals and show how they go about doing. So hopefully when folks read the book, they see, oh, I'm, I'm more like, you know, health services, or I'm more like energy services, or I'm more like life science, and I can read that particular kind of application. And So hopefully we have enough examples there that kind of give people a feel for it. Um, Okay. The other other thing that's interesting for me is um, what I've learned over the years in doing a lot of this work is there's a lot of conventional industry wisdom that's strongly held and is actually wrong. And that gives Mm -hmm. people brands an enormous opportunity to play the game differently. And if you'll bear with me for a second, let me let me sure. play out the scenario with you for a second because this is another one of my okay. favorite stories. Is selling cosmetics to teenage girls in North America? So I recognize teenage girls operate differently ac- across the globe, and we have a, a global audience with us. But in the North American market, teenage girls, on average, spend $11, and they typically shop at drugstores like CVS or Walgreens. These are, particularly in the United States, these are pharmaceutical place where you buy your your pharmacy and drugs, but they're also kind of a larger thing that sells some general packaging. So they typically, in the United States, have a long aisle of cosmetics display, right? And so our client was selling to teenage girls. Now, teenage girls, in our context, were much younger. So these are 12, 13, 14-year-old girls that are just getting into cosmetics. And um, and so the, the client actually had a conventional wisdom. They said, The right answer, there were two camps that emerged. The right answer was either going to be celebrities. Let's get, you know, let's get Justin Bieber to be kind of our person. Let's get somebody who who teenage girls really enjoy. It could be a a girl, it could be a boy, but that's one way to go. The other way to go was a whole other camp emerged and said, no, 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 no. The answer is social media. The answer is social media. And so our job is to figure out what's the right answer. So what we did is we... We spent a lot of time watching teenage girls and talking to teenage girls and seeing how they bought cosmetics and talking to their moms and their friends. turns out there was one magical insight. The magical insight was that when we watched teenage girls ethnographically in drugstores purchasing cosmetics, what we found was if the teenage girl did not sample our brand at the point of purchase display, she bought it 12% of the time. If the teenage girl sampled that has tried on our makeup or tried on our lipstick at the point of purchase display, she bought it 76% of the time. So let me pause for a moment. If she did not try our brand, she bought it 12%. If she tried our brand, she bought it 76% of the time. Well, you can imagine what happened here, Wanda. We took all the money away from social media. We took all the money away from celebrities. We assumed every other brand would drive the teenage girl to the point-of-purchase display, but once we got there, we built the best point-of-purchase displays in the industry. So you go into the store, and there were mirrors. You know, if you look like Jody, if you look like Amanda, you look like Chloe, here's the type of mix you have. We have a lot more displays, a lot more uh, trial size, a lot more colors that were interesting for teenage girls. Sales went up $150 million in, in two years, and it became one of the top five cool teenage brands. It became enormously relevant to teenage girls. Why? because we had one insight that was different than anybody else had. It was a unique insight, and it was also an insight that no one focused on. Everybody in the industry was focused on social media or celebrity advertising. That was the conventional wisdom. So I love conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom always kind of gets in the way of people exploring new ways to think about how to look at things. So, you know, oftentimes, oftentimes, we're in situations where the big challenge for the client is they see the world a particular way, and that world is actually not supported by the evidence. It's, it's, sort of a, it's, it's a lore, it's, it's, it's kind of a way they think about things, but it's not really kind of what's going on. So it means that a lot of what we do is evidence-based marketing. Let's quantitatively mm-hmm. figure out what's going on. It takes a lot of time and effort. You spend a good amount of money to figure out what's happening and understand the waterfall of drop-offs that are happening. And then once you do that, you've got magic, and then you, then you run with the magic, which is get the behavior, drive the behavior change. And a lot of times it's like teenage girls, meaning people are surprised by the behavior right. that's happening. You know, that's the beauty of it. You know, so therefore, you have a window to make the deals around point-of-purchase displays in drugstores. You have a window. While everybody else is focused on other stuff, you've got a 6, or, you've got a six 12, 18-month runway where no one thinks that's the right answer. You know, So that's a little bit of the, of the interesting thing right. about the approach.
1: Well, and they may watch your sales grow up, but they go up, but they still don't necessarily understand what it is you've done that's actually really driven it unless they look at the buying behavior. Um, I should say while we're at this point that the book, by the way, is called The Organic Growth Playbook. Activate high-yield behaviors to achieve extraordinary results every time. um, And written by Bernie Jaworski, my guest, and his co-author, Robert Lurie. So the notion here, I mean, I just I just love this idea that we have that the buying behavior, the pattern of influences, the ways in which people drop out of the buying behavior, the ways in which people are persuaded to engage in various stages of the buying behavior is way more complicated than we assume it is. And that understanding that buying behavior in detail is where you really start to unlock the magic. And surprise right. yourself. It's where conventional yeah. wisdom falls apart. Okay.
2: And, 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 and one, go ahead. yeah, go ahead. Now, no, one. Ahead. One, ahead. one thing I want to stress as you as you started to say that I realized sometimes I'm asked to explain how is mapping the buying process and looking at drop off rates throughout this. Let's say the energy services you're looking at 14 stages, where is drop off from 100 hypothetical customers? We may drop to 90, to 45, to 43, to 42 across these different stages. And what's interesting for us is the drop-off rates. That's the interesting thing. Now, the reason I bring that up is many folks on the phone probably do customer experience journey mapping. That's a wonderful technique in its own right, but it's very different than what we do. Customer experience journey mapping basically says map all the steps in the customer journey and look for pain points or opportunities to delight customers along the way. So the critical assumption of journey mapping is people get through the entire journey. If you look at most ways in which consultants or academics sell or talk about customer experience journey mapping, it assumes people go through the entire journey, and it assumes there's pain points and are along the way. That's not our approach. Our approach is all about where do they fall out. That's the issue. And why do they fall out, and how do they fall out, and how do we keep them in the process in a way that benefits us Not the other competitors in the marketplace. So one small little nit related to this journey mapping is that it is different than customer experience journey mapping. It's just a different technique. It's a different slice into how to think about
1: the phenomena. Interesting. As you're saying this, Vernie, it makes me think about a different kind of sales, which is an internal sale. All right. I have an idea. I have, a thing. I have an opportunity I think we should grab in the marketplace. I see a new product that we get introduced to our customers. I see an untapped need. I have an idea. I want to sell internally. But to be able yep. to deliver that idea, I need resources and time and attention and ultimately approval by some senior managers. It strikes me that you could take this exact same process of mapping how it is that senior managers to decide to allocate funds to something and use the exact same process to understand how to improve your rate of success inside the company. Understanding that's where really they fall out of the equation. Yeah, Yeah,
2: I, that's, it, Linda, that's a great idea. It's very funny. In all my years of doing this, no one's proposed that. They have proposed using the technique for other things. So, for example, human. Uh, when you're trying to uh, recruit talent, where are we losing people in the overall funnel of talent recruitment? Out of 100 hypothetical people we're targeting, where do they fall out? Do they fall out because they're not interested in, in joining our firm? Do they fall out because they're not interested in joining the cat? I'm a financial services company. Do they fall out because I'm not a financial services company and, and they fall out at the category level? Do they fall out very early in the process of career-wise? They don't get trained in this space. They don't want to go there, so I lose them when they go off to college. I and mean, where am I losing them? So I've seen it applied in other contexts, but I've not seen it applied in the context you're talking about, which is there are important decisions are important things that you want to have happen inside of the organization, and you're trying to figure out how do I change the mindset of the of the folks upstream so that we finally get downstream to a particular choice we want to have. I've, I've you know I, I've actually influenced the, the things in a way that advantages the likelihood of adoption of this decision that I want to have happen within the company. I think it's a really interesting way to think about it, and it's quite frankly. What's interesting is it's very different than the conventional wisdom on leading change. Conventional wisdom on leading change or leading an innovation effort is, you know, you've set the vision for it, you run some pilots, and then eventually you kind of get the idea adopted, and then you kind of have this dip, and then eventually it picks up and becomes institutionalized. But what we're saying is why not map the process of decision-making in a lot of detail and understand where it is that people are are not on board and then try and figure out what you can do to influence them. I've never had it proposed to me before, and I think it's a great idea. So I, n- I now have a new product line to sell, I guess is what you're telling me, Wanda, <laughs> which is
1: great. <laughs> well, you know, I think you're right about this, though, in terms of just sheer change management. I, I mean, I guess I've always sort of believed this. If I am trying to sell to my organization, behavior change. It's not unlike trying to sell to a consumer behavior change around buying my product versus around buying somebody else's. But we never stop to really understand the end-to-end process that people are engaged in around the thing that I'm trying to get changed. So suppose I'm trying to get people change how they use technology, for example. We've got to understand the soup to nuts of their activity. Then we can see, I think you're right to point out, where do people fall out and what do we do about it at that point? Not to make them wrong, but how do we find the right leverage point that's going to get the most people on board? I think it's fascinating. Fascinating. It's no, got I, more, far yeah. more implications than just branding.
2: Yeah. And, I, you know, the, the the the, so the, 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 okay, so the dirty little secret is marketing is not about differentiation, it's about behavior change. There's only one way sales can grow. Things have, people have to do something differently. It could be as simple as switching from Pepsi to Coke. It could be bringing new people into the category. It could be a few other things, but it's all about behavior change. Sales are not going to grow unless my customers do something different, and that's not the way we talk about it. We talk about customers, and we're trying to create exchange. We're trying to offer something of value. In return for value, we offer them. It's a very kind of nice, pleasant way to think about it. But fundamentally, if you're focused on behavior change, behavior change is hard. We know from the academic literature, you've got to play with three different variables. You've got to play with people's ability to change, their motivation for change, and their opportunity, i.e. their time. You know, if I manipulate someone's ability to change, I'm not going to get anywhere unless they're motivated to change. They may be motivated to change, but they don't have the ability to change. You know, and then all along the way, you've got to give people space and time to change. So behavior change is a perspective on what we're trying to do with our target customers. Is some people may find that offensive or, or difficult or not the right way to think about it, but that is the reality. Because if we just differentiate, we're just changing their attitudes or minds. We're not changing their behavior, and the only way organic growth happens is to change the behavior. And so it's a it's a higher bar, but I think it's the it's the right bar for us to be focusing on.
1: Well, I happen to believe that we um, act our way into new thinking and that I may put out a campaign that says we should change or this is a new way to think and so on. I may get very positive results from that campaign, but until people make a choice to act on it, I don't actually think you really change their thinking. I may change their reaction in the moment, but I don't actually really think they're engaged with something new until they're actually changing their behavior. That's my personal view. You're welcome to disagree with it.
2: There's Actually, it's interesting. There's something we've, we've both learned along the way in our career, something called the hierarchy of effects. And there's a real big debate, you know, within the academic literature about do you change attitudes first and then worry about behavior later, or do you change behavior first and then worry about attitude later? And, of course, the answer is some funky combination of the two. And, quote, it depends, right? But I think what what we're saying here is I'm focused fundamentally on changing the behavior of customers to the advantage of the client firm, recognizing that there's a whole cognitive part of that around their belief system, their attitudes, their desired experience, how they think about what competition is. So I start with the behavior, and then I, in the second phase, I focus on what's the cognition that I need to worry about in order to kind of to, to, to facilitate and reinforce the behavior that we're focused. Got it. On.
1: Got it. Fabulous. Okay, we're gonna take a break, Bernie. Um, I want to remind people that the book is called the Organic Growth Playbook how um, active high yield behaviors to achieve extraordinary results every time highly recommended as you've heard Bernie say this is a book that shows you how to do it so it's not a pick up and read quickly it's a pick up and here's how I do step 1 here's how I do step 2 here's how I do step 3 and a reminder for people that the steps are one we're going to map the buying process in infinite excruciating detail in a quantitative way number 2 we're going and we're going to look for that in a behavior that's really differentiating and as you heard bernie say we're looking for places where people drop out and why and then i want to segment based on people's propensity to do that particular behavior or turn on that particular behavior i want to profile people that's step three and step four is i create a value proposition that appeals to that behavior and then number five is i invest in showing people that i can address that particular behavior so we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit further about some of the thorny details behind granite Growth, and I want to talk about its implications for leadership. We'll be right back.
0: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to Wanda.Wallace at LeadershipForumINC.com. That's Wanda.Wallace at LeadershipForumINC.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone.
1: Welcome back to the show. With me today is Bernie Jaworski. Bernie is currently the Peter F. Drucker Chair of Management and Liberal Arts at the Drucker School. He's won amazing awards through the course of his career, and he spent um, 10 years as a senior partner at Monitor Group advising clients on human resource development, leadership approaches, and go-to-market strategies. The book that we've been talking about is called The Organic Growth Playbook. And it's the notion, once again, that the conventional wisdom of distinguishing your product by positioning and differentiating your product in the marketplace works only about a third of the time. That instead what you want to do is to get a detailed map of the buying process, detailed in ways you hadn't even thought you need to consider it and sometimes before it even naturally looks like a buying process. And then notice where you start to lose people in that buying process, and that will give you insights about what to do, what value proposition to put forward, what's going to make a difference. Okay? That's the, the idea behind it. Now, Bernie, I have two follow-on questions. First off, is you said, the conventional wisdom of positioning your product works about a third of the time. How do I know if that conventional wisdom is going to work? Yeah, or yeah. I need to abandon yeah. it and do something completely different.
2: So uh, so in the early days, we actually spent time tracking client success, and we tried to figure out what was happening. Um, and um, the problem is that it's very difficult to discern whether it works or doesn't work uh, yeah. in the sense that there's no, it's not like a B2B situation or B2C, or the buying process is simple and cleaner or not cleaner, or differentiating the product is really because of the nature of the competition in the marketplace, differentiation is going to be sufficient to kind of drive growth. Unfortunately, we spent a lot of time trying to figure that out because what happened is we at that time when we were trying to understand what was going on, we did not have the alternative techniques that we've now developed. What we were trying to figure out is what's going on here. It must be, and this is what typically happens, and this is why I mentioned it early on, is when it fails, people typically say, boy, we had the wrong people in place. Or they say, it wasn't differentiated enough. Or they say, we didn't execute the program well enough. And what we've seen repeatedly is all those things aren't true. That's why at the beginning when I said, we all times have really good teams that really follow the conventional wisdom and allocate enough money to the marketing program and execute it well, and it still fails. And so... The fundamental issue here is, as we think about it, was it is necessary, I think, to have a good product. We can't sell a bad product. But if you have a good product, differentiation is kind of important to send a message to lock in customers' mind. But it's certainly not sufficient. And that gets back at we could not find any pattern about when differentiation was going to work or not work. We spent two or three years looking for that because that was the easy answer, was to figure that out. But we just didn't see a pattern. Which then led us to look at something different. That, that's kind of what happened uh, in our in our process when we started out developing these techniques.
1: So, does your process work every time?
2: It does. <laughs> I know that sounds very very arrogant. In some cases, it may only increase sales one or uh, you know one x or two x above where it was. But we've had situations where sales have increased six x. We had a situation with a life science company where. The behavior that we figured out was not to differentiate our drug more than other competitor drugs in the marketplace. The behavior we figured out that influenced it, this is an asymptomatic disease condition, sort of like glaucoma, where you don't have symptoms. Um, And so therefore, you know, the idea that the doctor is going to conduct an objective test, is actually low probability. Typically, they, they look at you and they conduct a subjective test. Well, it turns out if physicians conducted the objective test, for our disease condition, for reasons I'm not going to explain, the, prob- the, the, the overall sales of our drug increased by six times. And so what happened is we shifted the marketing campaign away from differentiation in our product in the minds of the target physicians to get the physicians to con- conduct the objective test. So the whole campaign was objective test, objective test turns out our competition was very comfortable asking for objectives tests, too, because the boats rose for everybody. So objectives tests became the message for the overall product category, became kind of the industry standard. Long story short is, objective testing for this drug went up 60%, and in the first year, that was worth $350 million of incremental sales. Uh, And over the course of the campaign, sales incrementally increased over a billion dollars. Now, that's an exceptional case. But in every case that we illustrate in the book, in almost all my client situations, we had increases of 2 or 3x, very okay. reliable increases of 2 or 3x over client expectations of what they thought sales were going to look like for the product in the marketplace.
1: Okay. Now, you bring out the point of competition. Isn't there a point at which the competition starts to follow you? Like if I go back to the cosmetic drugstore yeah. um, buying Correct. behavior for teenage girls in North America, doesn't the competition then figure it out and do better displays themselves or not?
2: Yeah. So at some point, you know, let's take the this display example. The good news is that you can imagine we get lead time here because we're the first mover. Mm-hmm. We get the good displays in place. Someone else is looking around saying, hey, wait a second, where these good displays come from? And they see teenage girls. You know, use it. Then they have to say, wow, we get first off, we get a, we get a you go back to behavior change inside the company. we got to go back to our marketing teams and tell them, hey, guys, we need to find money for better displays. And then the team says, wait a second, we're already allocating a lot of money to celebrities. We're allocating money to social media. Where do we find the money for displays? So usually competition takes a while to respond, but at some point, they, they will match us. At some point, they'll figure out if we don't claim enough of the real estate and sign exclusive deals around real estate in the, in the, in the drugstore, they will catch us. But typically, it's two or three years out. Then what happens is now that's the industry standard. Now you go back and you map the process again because the environment changed, the competitive landscape changed. And now you figure out why is someone, you know, what's driving their behavior? Again, trying to look upstream, what's influencing teenage girls? And it might be, we may find out that, huh, kind of interesting. It's not, it flips back and we start dropping, teenage girls start dropping out at the social media stage. So now we allocate money to social media when competition's allocating money to displays. So it's a constantly moving market. People are going to catch you at some point, and that means that's the time for you then to begin to map the buying process again. What, what I oftentimes say to clients is I say, you've got to know something that other people don't know. If if, if you have the same knowledge, the same insight of what's happening in the marketplace that your competition does, that's a very difficult game to play. You've got to look for new knowledge that is unusual or different or challenging conventional wisdom that the knowledge itself, in terms of mapping the buying process, it's quantified, it's clear, it's objective, we see it, and that becomes the basis for our team to have a really rich, interesting conversation about what do we do with it. But way too often... Firms are happy to collect the same information, have the same insights, and then it's like you know the World War One trenches, you know, fighting it out you know, over the battle lines. It's a tough game yeah. to play, you know. And yeah. in fact, that's one of the indicators that you've got a problem. One of the indicators you have a problem is that you're fighting it out at brand choice, and everybody's spending tons of money at brand choice. If that's the issue you've got, there's two or three interesting competitors that are fighting it out. That's a big problem, and that means you need to start thinking differently about okay. what you might be able to do. Okay.
1: Well, this is the point at which when you're starting to, feel, to believe that pricing is the only thing that is going to succeed, that's where you know you're fighting it out at Brand Choice and that's where you need to look for the insight on a different way of doing this one. Okay, Brittany, I want to turn flip the tables on this one for a minute. And we've been talking about it in terms of uh, marketing and positioning your brand and getting consumers or customers or clients to buy the brand and all the pieces that go along the way there. And I want to say. It, have you learned anything about leadership along the way uh, in doing this kind of work uh, with clients?
2: Yeah, uh, and I know that, 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 uh, that uh, the program oftentimes focuses on leadership. Uh, and uh, I thought of, I've thought about that issue over the years, and, and it does have very clear implications for leadership. And let me mention two or three things. One is it takes enormous courage Because I'm going back to my boss. Let's take the woman that was running that particular pharmaceutical drug around objective testing, where Mm -hmm. everybody in the company said, it's about differentiating our product. It's about what what in that market was called mechanism of action. It's about the drug therapy, and we had a better mechanism of action relative to competitors. That's what everybody wanted to say. That was the conventional wisdom. Everybody believed it deeply. And so when this woman who was running, was director of launch products at this large pharmaceutical company came in and said, we're not going to spend money on that. Uh, we're going to spend money on objective testing. And, oh, by the way, the other thing she said, which is remarkable, is their budget was roughly $60 million a year. It's a, it was a blockbuster drug, so there's a lot of money being spent. She went in and said, I'm, I'm going I'm to increase sales by $200 million, and I'm going to give you back $15 million of marketing spend. And the guy running the overall North American business said, what are you, nuts? Like, that's crazy. Like, how can that happen? And she said, I know exactly what behavior to change. If I can change this behavior, I can show mathematically Change a number of objective tests drive sales this way. I know exactly. And, and so their boss said, i just keep the extra 15000000 million. You'll use it somewhere. So there was just a deep belief system. So, so whenever someone challenges this wisdom of saying, I'm going to do it differently, you're going to get enormous resistance. And the courage is to stick to your guns around that. Number two, leadership issue. It's easy to, easier to have courage when you have the empirical evidence. I call this evidence-based marketing. That is, you have to have the data. You can't wing it. You can't say, hey, I think prime users buy more than non-prime users. You can't make that stuff up. But if I show you 7x the amount of volume, that's a very clear signal that that's where you can convince people much easier when you have the actual empirical data about the buying process and what's happening than if you don't. So I think you need to, you've got to have the, the evidence behind it before you play the card. The third thing is it's probably very consistent with, the change management literature, is that you've got to build a, a guiding coalition. You can't be the sole person who buys this conventional wisdom. You've got to get your team to think about it and buy into it. And normally, when we do this activity within companies, we get cross-functional teams together because if you get the marketing folks saying it, then the sales folks or the R&D folks or the other folks are going to say, that doesn't work. That's not, that's not the way it works. So, you, so typically, we build teams, like in the pharmaceutical case, where we had people in marketing, we had people in product launch, we had people on the product development side, we had some of the key sales force, and they all collectively saw the data that was being collected, they saw the objective test stuff. So you've got to build, in classic change management sense, some sort of guiding coalition, and you have to have air cover from senior people in the company that also buy it as, as a kind of mm-hmm. critical issue. And the last point I guess I'd make at this point is that, on the leadership side, is that you've got to run some pilot programs. I've seen it being done where people have not, they've just, you know, I've given a talk and they've sort of adopted the technique. It's easier to run a pilot because a pilot shows the early evidence that it works. So if we can show people, here's the cosmetics example, now let's run the same thing across the entire cosmetics line for all the women that we're serving, or now in HVAC, we ran it for this HVAC system, let's run it for this, or in the case of this drug, we ran it for drug A, now let's run it for drug B, C, D. You've got to have the pilot that supports the evidence around any type of major Uh, roll out. So so those are some observations about kind of leadership side.
1: Sounds to me like very much like you're using your process to convince people to change their mind, change their behavior about what they're doing. Fascinating. So and courage, I get that courage and some data, we have to have some proof, have to be able to let other people see it along the way. I want to ask about emotion in this process. So you, you've you described this whole thing as a very analytical, data-driven, evidence-based. I'm going to map out the buying process. I'm going to understand the steps. I'm going to understand the influences. I'm going to see every piece there is in that buying process. And I'm going to show you that if we intervene in particular behaviors, we're going to get different kind of results. Where's the role of emotions in this whole process?
2: So the way that we typically uh, bring in emotion is once we've mapped the buying process in a lot of detail, once we've figured out the waterfall of drop-off rates, once we've figured out that this behavior to change is one that we can do cost-effectively and it actually advantages us, not the overall marketplace, um, and, and we can actually activate those people to do the behavior change, once we kind of pass some screens, then what we do is we then say, okay, let's step way back. Now that we know it's about behavior change, now we need to begin to ask the question of how do we get that change to happen? And that's where cognition, attitudes, emotion, thoughts, all filter into the process. So all these issues of emotion, of cognition, of attitudes, of usage, of ways of thinking, um, all of that kicks in once we've isolated the behavior. But we don't look at emotions early. We look only after we know what the behavior is that we then entertain the fact that it's an emotion. So to go back to our physician example, and we look at the physicians conducting the objective test, you know, there's some emotion around, do I actually, who are the physicians that are likely to conduct the objective test, and how do I get them to think about actually doing the objective test rather than conventional wisdom, which is to do the subjective testing? That's an emotion-laden decision. Mm-hmm. The, going back to the HVAC example of facility managers, it turns out that one of the big insights around these building managers is that the target we had in mind were people that thought of themselves very, uh, as a very professional worker, someone who learned about thought leadership in the industry around energy services, someone who was, very, was going to conferences and attending conferences. They had a whole set of emotions around their role as a professional in this particular context. And that emotion around their career, what was important to them, how they could influence decisions on the company was very, very important. So that understanding that emotional state combined with what they thought was important to do in their context was important for us to understand and map. And so all the emotion and all the cognition ends up being filtered through these drivers and barriers of the behavior. That's where it ultimately gets expressed in our framework.
1: So I get some data, I understand the, you know, the buying process, I understand the waterfall and the dropout, I understand the behaviors that we could tap that would make a difference. And it's after I've identified those sets of behaviors that I now start to look at how I change them. And that's where thoughts, ideas, evidence, data, emotions, all of that comes together to look at what is it that we can do that's going to change, change behavior. So Bernie, we just have a couple minutes before we stop, but it seems to me that this understanding of the buying process is such a critical part, and I know you have details on how to do this in the book. Can you just give me a highlight on how what what that uh, process of mapping out the behavior of the buying process yeah. looks like?
2: Yeah, and the unfortunate thing uh, for folks uh, that are listening in is that this is a complicated nuance process. So yes. it's not mm-hmm. as simple as, as here are the six major steps that we can take out of a textbook and map it. So let me give you a feel for just high level what needs to be done. Okay. The first thing is the more steps, the better. So when you're mapping a process and you're saying things like they, they are, there's some problem origination, there's some information search, there's some category search, there's some brand choice, those are way too generic. You've got to be able to look at a lot of detail. So for example, in the context of HVACs, I mentioned the idea there were six or seven steps the client thought was happening. They thought of that because the sales force only saw that. But in fact, there were 14 steps because once you went inside the client organization, you saw all this complexity that was unfolding behind the scenes around their internal buying center, how they came up with the specifications, how they thought about price, when procurement got involved. So first observation is, Be very careful, and the more steps, the better, because it allows you to see potential drop-off rates you didn't see before. And number two, don't take the word of the sales force. Go into the client organization to really deeply understand and explore what that looks like. That's step one. Step two is at each step in the process, make sure you're looking at the behaviors. So for the information search stage, for the HVAC people, I want to see things like they're searching on the web. They're talking to other people. They're going to conferences. Uh, It turns out there are about 20 different information search options they had, and we had to look at all of them just at the information search stage. So you're mapping the general stages, and then within a stage, you're mapping all of the behaviors that are observed there. The third thing you do is begin to then quantify it. Where are we losing them? Out of 100 hypothetical customers, where do they fall out? And that mapping process, as we explain in the book, we give lots of illustrations. It's, it's fairly nuanced and fairly complicated, but if you read the book, you'll see that it's not as difficult as it may seem. So that kind of gives you at least a feel for some of the steps that you do. Once once you figure out where the drop-offs are, then you try and figure out where the high yield behavior is, and then you start asking three criteria that you need to put in place around that, that are also noted in the book. Things like, can I actually change that behavior, or is it too difficult? Is it cost effective? Do I get the return on investment? Do I benefit from that behavior change relative to competition? So there's a little bit more kind of there, but we we try to make it accessible. But I will say um, that you gotta you gotta you gotta do your work when you read the book. It's not as easy as reading a, a novel. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's right. it's kind of a it's there's a lot there and hopefully we give enough description where people can, can make a book it work
1: well, presumably this is the kind of thing where if I'm going to truly map this buying process, I've got to go into the client and I've got to observe them and I've got to be having detailed conversations with some collections of clients to understand what the thinking is, almost like a day in the life of or a month in the life of. Is that what you're headed towards?
0: Yeah,
2: that's, that's, that's correct.
1: Uh, and it requires,
2: to your point, a lot of time and effort, unfortunately. You know, Particularly in B2B situations where you have a complex buying center of many people involved, at different phases and stages of the process, um, then, okay. yeah, it's going to get a more, lot more, more complicated.
1: Okay, fair enough. Now, we've talked about this, for the most part, in terms of consumer products like cosmetic goods or Amazon. We've talked about it as in um, B2B processes like HVAC. We talked a little bit about it in terms of medical or pharmaceutical drug. What if I'm selling advisory services? Let's say financial services. Have you done any cases that look like that?
2: Yeah, we actually have a case uh, in the book, uh, a chapter on wealth management. Um, what was interesting in that case is that most people, um, when when you're doing financial planning and you get the very first meeting with the financial planner, what typically happens is the financial planner says, "We need to do a plan, and in order for me to write the plan, I need to be able to do get all this information from you, the target client." And the target client looks at that and says. That's one heck of a lot of data I've got to get a hold of. So there's a massive drop-off rate between meeting one and meeting two because what the financial planners is requesting is someone to basically spend about 20 hours finding out <laughs> what yeah. do they have for assets, what do they look like, where are they allocated, and, and usually the people say, ah, it's just too much work, forget about it. Mm-hmm. So what we did is we mapped the buying process for financial services, and what we found was in wealth management was that the, um, it was very, very interesting. People, tend to, people don't think holistically about their finances. They think in terms of buckets and jobs to be done. So, for example, if someone all of a sudden got an inheritance or someone all of a sudden had to allocate funds for college, they have a very specific jobs to be done, and that's their headset. And either in mental buckets or literally in physical buckets, they'll put money in these areas. So for a college fund, they might, in the United States market, do something called the 529 account, where they take the money and they put it there. So it's over there. Or they take grandma's inheritance and put it in this mutual fund, right? So, so while the financial planner is thinking holistically about the overall package and all, the people that are doing this are thinking episodically about different things they're doing. And it turned out that if, if shifting the financial planner away from selling a financial plan to basically reaching out to customers when they had a jobs to be done, when they had an inheritance, when they had a birth of a new child, when they, and you didn't ask them to give me all your information you just ask them episodically for this. You just got an inheritance from your grandmother. What would you like to do with it? Because I can help you think through that. Once you kind of developed credibility around that, then yes, at some point you could do the financial plan. But the burden of doing the financial plan was just overwhelming for clients. So they needed to kind of debundle and focus much more clearly on specific activities they were engaged in around finances rather than think about it holistically so it does work in financial in 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 advisory services it absolutely works is
0: the headline
1: okay i think my um financial advisor must have been one of the clients that worked with you because that is exactly what they did to me it's really funny listening to listen map it out because that's exactly the process and boy did it work for them i guess i'm giving away some secrets about myself Bernie, uh, this is a fascinating journey. And I can imagine that your work with clients has been incredibly rewarding. Um, And to come back to the general notion here before we close, it's looking at the buying process in great detail. Every single step, every single influence, every single thinking pattern from the buyer's point of view, not from your sales person's point of view, not from your conventional wisdom point of view, but objectively, how are they really thinking about it? and How are they influencing it? And then we look for ways in which people drop out of that process. And then I'm looking for behaviors that we can influence that will affect us, that we can do something about that will keep you in the buying process and spend against it. What a really clever system. Um, As we've said, I have one last comment I'm going to make before we um, close for the day. We talked about this in terms of the same process works for driving change within a company because what you're doing is selling a different behavior inside a company. I think it also works in terms of selling an idea, creating innovation process, if you will, for adopting a new idea or getting resources against a different idea. And my suspicion, Vernie, my question to you in the last minute and a half is, do you think it would work for personal branding?
2: Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. I, I think that uh, it depends on, on to some degree upon what your objective is. So, if, if in the context of personal branding, if the objective is for you to build your brand by doing a set of activities, let's say it's conferences, or let's say it's blogging behavior, the question really at the starting point is: from the let's say I want to do more, more speaking engagements and I'm build my thought leadership sort of profile in some area, I do have to begin to think about where am I, and, and, and as a sales process or a buying process how do I get to be part of this sort of speaking bureau? Or how do I get to be part of this conference thing? And uh, in terms of engagement as a a guest speaker, you can think of 100 potential target things to do, and you begin to think about where do I start to fall out of that process? Where, Where is my brand not strong enough for me to be engaged in a speaking engagement, let's say, or if people are driving people to my blog, let's say. I think the same thinking can be applied. Where am I okay. losing people in terms of the blog? <laughs> only oh, the three out of 100 potential target customers are using my blog, that's a problem, right? So I need to okay. map that to understand. So it does
1: apply. Okay. I think it would also work if you're trying to look at your own promotion rate. And with that, we have to stop. So Bernie, fabulous to have you as a guest on the show. Um, My guest again is Bernie Jaworski. The book we've been talking about is The Organic Growth Playbook. And as we've said, if you're looking for a how-to guide on doing this process that we've been talking about to drive growth by 1x, 2x, 3x or more, check out the book. It's the place to go. Bernie, thanks a lot. Thank you. And join us next week for another episode on how to get out of your comfort zone.
0: Thank you for joining us today.